Well, this morning I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis. It shouldn't be a hard one to find. The first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Pascal wrote concerning the book of Genesis, he said these words, When the creation of the world began to recede into the past, God provided a single contemporary historian and charged an entire people with the custody of this book, so that this should be the most authentic history in the world. And all men could learn from it something which was so necessary for them to know and which could only be known from it. The book of Genesis begins with a simple affirmation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The careful student of the Word of God will notice immediately that Genesis does not argue for the existence of God. Rather, it is assumed. This is not to say that arguments for God's existence are unnecessary or even worthless. That's surely not the case. But Moses is writing to a people who affirmed that God exists. And it would have been superfluous and cumbersome at this point to argue for something that they already believed. We'll get into the text itself next week, but before we do, a few points of introduction are in order. In this study, I will assume mosaic authorship of the book of Genesis. I will assume mosaic authorship of the book of Genesis. Genesis is revelation from God, and as such, its primary author, like any other canonical book, is the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes we talk about the big A author and then the little A author of Scripture. The big A author of any book of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. And as such, the book of Genesis is authoritative for faith and for practice for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Scripture. And since it is Scripture we must be careful to go beyond strictly academic inquiry as to the identity of its human author, for example, or maybe other factors like the date of writing, and look to discover the theological truths that are presented in this wonderful book and then live consistently with those truths. Does that make sense? That should be our goal as we study Genesis, because all Scripture, and Genesis is Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be mature, thoroughly furnished, or thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Genesis is is Scripture, and so it is one of those books that Paul is speaking about in 2 Timothy. With that said, there are some issues, some introductory issues, that require at least a passing mention, and one of those is the authorship of the book. The view that Moses is the human author, not only of Genesis, but also of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, also known as the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch, the the fact or the, the view that Moses is the human author of the Pentateuch has support that goes way back into the history of the church and even back into the history of the ancient synagogue. Certainly it goes back as far as the New Testament, the church fathers, and most commentators on Genesis up until the 18th century. So throughout that entire time, it was assumed, it was understood that Moses wrote Genesis. But in the 18th century, there was a rise of something called modern biblical criticism, and where they started doing different kind of analysis of the text. And so at that point, some other views came into play. But it's very important for us to note 
that, that up until that point in time, the mid-1700s, it was assumed all throughout the, the history of the church and even hundreds of years before that, that Moses was the author. Now, there's a reason I'm telling you this. For, for some of you, it won't matter. But if you're on your way to college, if you're there right now, you're going to understand that there's a particular reason why I'm going over this. I'll mention it in just a moment. In John chapter 7, verse 22, Jesus said, Jesus said, Moses gave you circumcision. John chapter 7, verse 22, which is reasonably seen as a reference or an allusion to Genesis chapter 17, 12, where circumcision is introduced. But I want you to notice, Jesus said that. Jesus is quoted as saying that in John chapter 7, verse 22. Of course, God is the one that actually introduced circumcision in that passage to Abraham, but Moses is recording Moses is the one that is recording the event itself. So that's why Jesus would say, Moses gave you circumcision. It actually takes a pretty active imagination to deny that Jesus did not hold to Mosaic authorship. Jesus held, Jesus held that Moses wrote Genesis. That ought to settle the issue, but let's go further. The threefold division of the Hebrew canon into these parts, the law of Moses, as it was called, the law of Moses, also the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The second category are the writings, are the second category of the prophets, and the third category are the writings. These, these three categories, these three ways of breaking down the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, is attested as early as the non-canonical prologue of Ecclesiasticus, which goes all the way back to 190 B.C. B.C., before Christ. And the division is also attested in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, by Jesus himself. Are you starting to see where we're going? Jesus is the one that said Moses is the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as if, and if you view that, that, that Jesus believed that Moses wrote Genesis uh, is the case, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, and this is what's critical. This is what I meant a moment ago, why I warned you about those who are fixed to go to college. If Jesus claimed that Moses wrote Genesis, and Jesus is who he claimed to be, then that should settle the issue, shouldn't it? In the same way, if Jesus held to the inerrancy of Scripture, Dr. Geisler was here a few weeks ago, if, and he was speaking about inerrancy, and he made the point that Jesus held to the inerrancy of Scripture. And if Jesus is who he claimed to be, then the scripture is inerrant. However, in spite of this, academic inquiry continues into this issue, and literary analysis, in the view of some, indicates the possibility of multiple authorship of Genesis. I was first introduced to this view as a freshman at Louisiana State University some 35 years ago in a world history class there. I didn't think much of the view then that Genesis had multiple authors, even as a young man, and my view has not changed in the intervening years. But I mention it to you now so that at least you'll be aware of it, and if you're on your way to college, you won't be thrown off by this particular view, because there's a reason why this happens. A man named Wellhausen, and if you do make it to a humanities class or world history class or Old Testament literature class in college, you'll hear of him. A man named Wellhausen developed what he called the documentary hypothesis in 1878, suggesting at least four separate sources or authors for the book of Genesis. 
It also became known as the JEDP, the letters JEDP theory. These letters, JEDP, stand for four supposed separate authors of the book of Genesis. The, the first one, J, the author who uses Yahweh or Jehovah for the name of God. The second one, the author who uses Elohim for the name of God. The third one is the author of Deuteronomy. Then the fourth would be some priestly author of Leviticus. The JEDP theory goes on to state that the different portions of the Pentateuch, Matthew, uh, uh, so the Gospels, I'm so used to the New Testament, but Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, these, these portions were likely compiled in the 4th century by someone maybe perhaps like Ezra. Those who have studied at the university level know that this is not treated as theory. When you get to university level, that's treated as fact. That at least four different people wrote Genesis. That's treated as fact. But an objective look at the evidence reveals that it is far from fact and nothing more than a theory based upon literary analysis. But here's the point. It stands opposed to the testimony of the ancient synagogue, to the testimony of the New Testament, to the testimony of the church fathers, and to the testimony of most every commentator on Genesis up until the 18th century. This is a new view. This is actually also presented in some seminaries today, not the seminary that I attended, but some seminaries that we would consider liberal seminaries, not liberal politically, but liberal theologically. But the sad fact is, this is the sad fact, that many of those who spend their lives attempting to disprove Mosaic authorship of Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch don't believe a word of Genesis to be revelation from God or authoritative. So they don't practice it. They spend their lives trying to demonstrate that Moses is not the author of Genesis, and they forget that Genesis is revelation from God, and it should be understood and then applied to the life. Now, the reason that this is important, and it's important to you, even if you're not going to college right now, because you may hear it in, in some other setting, the reason that this is important, and the reason that I believe that it's so critical for some of these professors to come up with four authors for Genesis is because, like I told you a minute ago, Jesus believed that Moses wrote Genesis. So you see, it's not an attack on Mosaic authorship. And some of you are probably wondering, why is he putting me to sleep with this? It's not an attack on Mosaic authorship. It's an attack on Jesus. Do you see the point? And if a college professor can convince you that there were four different authors of Genesis, that your Sunday school teacher was wrong, that your pastor was wrong, then what have they entered into? What have they brought in through the back door? That Jesus was fallible, that He wasn't right about everything, and you see that's why it needs to be mentioned, because it's about Christ. It's about the reliability of Christ. And if Christ thought, listen, if Christ believed, if Christ taught that Moses wrote Genesis, and Christ is who He claimed to be, then that should settle the issue. So when you get to college, or when you hear this on Channel 8, or Channel 14, or wherever you may hear the debate, understood, first and foremost, that it's an attack on Jesus. Either Jesus is who he claimed to be, or we can all go home anyway. It doesn't matter who wrote Genesis. If Jesus is not who he claimed to be, but if he's who he claimed to be, then it matters greatly. So in this study, I will assume Mosaic authorship, because I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. Amen to that. The second point of introduction, and it's a shorter one, is that Jesus was written with two audi- I mean, Genesis was written, excuse me, Genesis was written with two audiences in mind. First, 
was the original audience. These were Jews who had been redeemed from Egypt and were currently in the wilderness, caught between, as it were, two cultures. Caught between the Egyptian culture, which they had left behind, and the Canaanite culture, which lay in front of them. This is the point in time that Genesis was written, and this is the audience that it's written originally to. It's written originally to people who were caught in between two cultures, who had been rescued from Egypt, and are now out in the wilderness. Now, that's critical for understanding what's going on in the first few chapters of Genesis, and actually throughout the whole thing, I believe, but especially the first few chapters. The second audience is you and me, the rest of us. Genesis was not written exclusively for the Jews, but it was written originally to the Jews, and then we have an opportunity to learn many things from it as well. The third and the final point of introduction this morning, it was written, Genesis was written with respect to the original audience to demonstrate that the God of Israel who redeemed the Jews from bondage in Egypt and promised them the land was the same God that created the heavens and the earth. The same God that just rescued you from Egypt. The one that brought you out into this wilderness. The one that has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. That's the same God that created the heavens and the earth. That is one of the key points of Genesis, and we must understand that well. Because, you see, the two cultures that the Jews found themselves caught in between were both powerful peoples. You know about Egypt. Egypt was one of the most powerful countries, one of the most powerful nations on the planet at the time that Moses wrote Genesis. At the time that the Jews were out in the wilderness, Egypt was a very powerful power. And they were behind them. In other words, they couldn't really go back in their mind because they had this extremely powerful nation that's to their rear. But that's not all. The Canaanites that were in front of them were very powerful and intimidating as well. So you see, you've got a frightened people, no real military to speak of. You've got uh, approximately two million people, half of them, at least half of them women and children, probably two-thirds women and children in that group. And there's, a, there's an intimidation factor. You've got people behind, and you've got people in front. But here's going to be Moses' point. And if we get this, we'll get the first chapter, uh, we actually get the first two chapters. Both of the cultures... Both of the cultures, the one behind them and the one in front of them, both of these cultures worshipped aspects of the God of Israel's creation. Both of those cultures, Egypt and the Canaanites, what they worshipped, Yahweh had created. The sun, the moon, the sky, for example, were worshipped by the Egyptians. Bulls, cats, I have no idea why a cat would be worshipped, but they, they worshipped cats, crocodiles. The Egyptians worshipped crocodiles. The things that were on dry land and the things that lived in the sea. Both the Egyptians and the Canaanites worshipped these things. And so what Moses is saying is, look, the, the people that are in front of you, they worship the sun. They worship things that walk around on dry land. And yes, they're going to be giants. They're big people. They're bad people when it comes to their military. But listen, the things that they worship... The God of Israel, the one that, that rescued you from Egypt in the first place and brought you out into this land that you're wondering about right now, that you're grumbling against right now, that same God is the one that created the sun that the Egyptians worshipped, that the Canaanites worshipped. The same God that created that cat or the crocodiles or the bull or the stars or the heavens or the earth that these people, the ones that you're afraid of, 
the same God that created those people and created the sun, the bulls, the crocodiles, the cats, everything that's on dry land, everything that's in the sea, that's your God. That's Yahweh. That's His point. The things they worshipped, the God of Israel created. That's the point of Genesis chapter 1. So you see why it has application for the Jews in, in their wandering in the wilderness? I can sure see that. Because Moses is trying to calm them down. His message is quite simple, in fact. You need not fear either the Egyptians who are behind you or the Canaanites who are in front of you. Because they worship that which your God created. The God of the universe is on your side. That's the message that Moses is preaching in Genesis. The God of the universe is on your side. So what are you afraid of? You see, as, as an ancient Israelite read the book of Genesis, that should be the message that they came away with. What are you afraid of? God, the, the one who created everything, including the Egyptians and the Canaanites, because we're going to see that God created man and woman as well. Even the people, even those people that you're afraid of, God's the one that created them. And if he's on your side, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? If, if the God of the universe is on your side, is Israelites, Jewish folks, what are you afraid of? Now, the same approach can be taken by us some 3,500 years later as we read this book. My friends, the God of the universe is on your side. He's on your side. We've nothing to fear from any aspect of God's creation when we are rightly related to the Creator. He's on your side, if you're rightly related to Him. And if He's on your side, if the one who created all these things and all these people, if He's on your side, what are you so darn scared about? What are we so frightened about? If the God of the universe is on our side, why do we fear illness when the God of the universe is on your side, the one who created this body? Why do we fear financial ruin? Why, why do we fear the loss of all our money when we worship the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and created those cattle in the first place? What are we so afraid of? Why do we fear attacks from terrorism or foreign powers when the God we worship gives life to all things, including those terrorists, including those foreign powers? What are we afraid of? You see, the book of Genesis was not written primarily to satisfy our curiosity about certain aspects as to how God created. Now, we're going to go over as many of those aspects as we can. But if we miss the beauty here, then there's no point in studying the book. The beauty of this is the God of the universe is on your side. He's on your side. He's on your side. We have nothing to be afraid of, provided, provided that we're rightly related to this Creator. Paul put it this way, some thousands of years later, after Moses wrote, 1,500 years later, in the, in the conclusion, one of the conclusion statements of that great chapter 8 in Romans, if God is for you, who can be against you? Now think about that for a minute. If the God of the universe is on your side, does it matter who lines up against you? If the God of the universe is on your side, 
does it matter if a bunch of terrorists get mad at you? I mean, does it? Because if you listen to the news today, if you get on the Internet at all and, and are informed, and I hope that you would listen to something and be informed, there seems to be fear like I've never seen it before. These, these mean fellows going to come strap a bomb and, and blow us up. Don't do those tapes to Pakistan. Something might happen to you. I had someone that, said, that loves me very much said, listen, make sure you don't put your name on those tapes. You know? Well, why not? If the God of the universe is on my side, then he's going to take me home. When he gets ready to take me home, not a moment sooner, thank you very much. And I'm not trying to be morbid with this at all, but he's in charge. And he's on my side, and I'm on his side. If he's on my side, then what am I afraid of? If he's on your side, what are you afraid of? Now, I'm not trying to minimize anyone's problems. Of course, it's a difficult thing. It's, it's easy for me to say that here when Ozzam has gone back home. And the bombs are blowing up a lot closer to his house than they are to mine. But he feels the same way. If God is on his side, then he's got nothing to be afraid of. Yes, I know there are many illnesses that are represented in this room right now. I mean many illnesses. A wide variety. Some are maybe not so serious and some are extremely serious. But listen, the God who made your body, the God who created you in the first place, is on your side. So there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear if God is on your side. And he's on your side if you're rightly related to him. So the key is to be rightly related to God, isn't it? So these three points of introduction as we close our time together this morning are relatively simple. I assume mosaic authorship, not just because of an academic inquiry, an academic study. It's because Jesus, who I believe to be who he said he was, held to mosaic authorship. That's my primary reason. Now, the ancient synagogue did as well. The early church fathers did. All commentators on Genesis did up until the 18th century. But that wouldn't mean as much to me if it wasn't for Jesus' testimony. So I, I hold to Mosaic authorship because of Jesus. The second point of introduction, this book is written primarily, at least to its original audience, to people who had been redeemed from Egypt, God's covenanted people who had been rescued from Egypt on their way into Canaan who are currently out in the wilderness and are afraid. That's the second point of introduction. And the third point of introduction is that this book was written, probably the most important of all these points of introduction, this book is written to demonstrate that the God of Israel, who rescued them from Egypt in the first place, is the same God that created the things that both of these cultures worshipped. So what are they afraid of? And the message for us, if God is on your side, then what do you have to be afraid of? What am I so worried about if he's on your side? Now, that does seem to be the operative question as we close our time together. Is he on your side? Are you rightly related to him? Are you and the creator of the universe on the same team? Or do you find yourself here this morning not on God's side? And that's possible. We talked about it a few moments ago, but let me close our time together with these words as well. God loved you so much, so much, 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish, but have everlasting life. You want to be on God's side? If you really want to be on God's side, then trust his son. Because we're all children of God in the sense of creation. But that's not good enough. We need to be children of God in the sense of salvation. So if that's an issue, I I pray that you'll consider Jesus today. And not just because your mom wants you to. Not just because your dad wants you to. Not just because your friends want you to. And not just because I want you to. Very, very much. I want you to do it for you. Because one day you will leave this earth. I promise. And I trust that you'll be on God's side when you do. Now, if you have trusted Jesus Christ, there's another way we can make sure we're on God's side moment by moment, day by day. And that is to continually trust Him. To continue to show that we love Him by obeying His commandments. To walk in fellowship with God. Moment by moment, day by day. If God is for us, Who can be against us? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us. That you've done so from Genesis to Revelation. And now as we begin this study of the book of Genesis, help us to glean truth from it. Help us to recognize that it is revelation from you. And help us to live consistently with what we find in this great book. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.